analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It's an overcast, a bit of a cold morning here in Kamloops, overcast day. Uh, we got a full and exciting show for you ahead. We're going to talk about uh, anti-gang programs in school districts across the province, including right here in Kamloops with BC's Education Minister. We'll also talk to BC Transit as that utility moves to a tap card system. How they're doing that, we'll find out a little bit later. And we'll also talk about car crashes and how to be reactive and not pro, uh, rather how to be proactive and not reactive uh, when it comes to averting car crashes out on the road. But first, we want to find out how a meeting went down in Vancouver between this province's Attorney General, David Eby, and a group of Kamloops business people, some of whom went down to Vancouver to meet with them in person, others uh, others linked in via teleconference here in Kamloops. This happened yesterday, all around the punting of the BCLC uh, downtown headquarters replacement project, one that looked like it was well on its way to becoming to fruition, and a story we broke here on Radio NL a couple of weeks back, the province ultimately saying, no thank you. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by Josh. Joshua Nack, who is the president of the Chamber of Commerce here in Kamloops, also with ARPA Investments and something of a Twitter savant. Good morning, Joshua. Morning. Thanks for having me. Wow. You didn't even snark back on the Twitter savant thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Uh, so first question to you. You were in the room with uh, with David Eby yesterday. Uh, yeah, there are some concerns around, as I mentioned, the BCLC headquarters replacement project. Uh, give me an idea of what happened in the meeting and uh, sort of what your takeaway is uh, now that you've had some time to process it. Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the first thing that came out of that was was there was a, a uh, something that I haven't seen before, which is where leaders of, of 10 business organizations in Kamloops were, we, we all signed the same letter. And uh, I think sometimes sometimes everybody sort of does their own thing or, or maybe we can get two or three together. But, I mean, this was something where everybody came together. Everybody was on the same page, and uh, and, and this was important. And so a letter was sent to David Eby just uh, saying how, um, how, how disappointing this was and then also expressing greater concern about what does this actually mean. And, uh, and so his office reached out and, said, and suggested a meeting, and, and so that took place. So, I mean, I think at the meeting we were able to communicate a number of things. One was the significance of BCLC. To, to our community um, as an employer, as a, as a community partner uh, in many different ways and, uh, and, and, and told them we were, we were all very shocked really at the news that, that this wasn't going to happen but then, but then reiterated the greater concern of so what does this mean? Uh, what happens to the 250 jobs that were going to be created there over the next 10 years? Where do those go? Where are those people placed? Um, you know, what is the commitment to BC from, from BCLC? And, and actually there were... Um, Jim Lightbody was there from BCLC as well as the chair of their board, and and that was great because it was great for them, I think, to hear from us, but also to get the assurances that uh, that BCLC remains committed to Kamloops, that uh, that that you know while this is a a, uh, a very unfortunate decision, I think um, at this point in time for Kamloops, they they made it clear that uh, that they're not going anywhere, that that growth is still anticipated. And actually, there was an offer made to set up an ongoing uh, consultation or or discussion process to just make sure that that community uh, that the community is in the loop of the plans of BCLC, and and also that we have ways to perhaps support the work that they're doing. Lincoln Smith was there from Kamloops Innovation Center from TRU, talked about the importance of uh, BCLC with tech. That's another thing that uh, that uh, that Minister Eby and um, 
and the staff from BCLC acknowledged and, and wanted to uh, wanted to support and expand. I think I think it's great for them to, to hear the, the maybe the, the broader ranging impact of BCLC in the community beyond just the obvious. So, uh, first question first with the BCLC replacement project. Uh, did you get a sense out of the meeting, uh, there's some wiggle room here, we might revisit it, uh, we're thinking about it again, or that door is firmly closed? Any sense on that particular front? Uh, you know, I, I think that that particular door is firmly closed, but I don't know for how long. So, uh, you know, there, there was a, there was acknowledgments made that, that there is work that needs to be done. But uh, but it, but it but it you know I, I don't I don't think that this is a forever forever scenario. I mean even even at the meeting and after the meeting there were some some other scenarios that were being floated around and, and you know Venture Kamloops raised a very good point. The city's revitalization plan for downtown. This is one corner of it, and and there you know there are what three or four projects that are being contemplated downtown. But but on this particular corner, this this was a key component of that. And uh, and so now, what happens on that corner? And, and that was raised actually to uh, to Minister Eby, and and uh, and and he he talked about ongoing conversations with the city about you know what what can be done. We've got an aging city hall, we've got an aging DCLC building. Maybe it's not going to happen next year, but but when can it happen? When can when can there be something? And again, that's that's not in my that's not in my pay grade. <laughs> uh, the other issue, uh, and you touched on a little bit already, and the concern was, uh, should they revitalize, should they replace the BCLC downtown headquarters here in Kamloops, ostensibly it would have provided room to grow. So hundreds of new employees would have uh, would have been hired into this city over a number of years. The question marks around well, what happens now for sticking with an old building that has some spacing issues. Did you get assurances that new hiring is coming to Kamloops and that there will not be leakage down to Vancouver or no? You know, I, I, I don't think that anybody can guarantee that there won't be any leakage down to Vancouver. It does sound that that, that when jobs are are, uh, are 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 created, that that there are options there. But but it, it, between Vancouver and between Kamloops, but you know, it, it, when it, there's lots of things to go around the go around the community and go around the social media. And, and one was that uh, was that Vancouver was you know a job may be posted as Kamloops or Vancouver, but the preference was to Vancouver, and we were assured that that's absolutely not the case. In fact, they talked about the advantages of having a uh, of having BCLC in Kamloops. Just even from a from a uh, from an employment uh, standpoint, the uh, the cost of living is is, is much lower and. And uh, Jim Lightbody actually mentioned the, um, that uh, that there's employees in Vancouver that are that are interested in transferring to Kamloops because they've seen it, and because it's an attractive place. And and so uh, you know it, it's it's it, that raises the question of where do we put them? But it does sound like there's some modernization that that is planned for the building, and and hopefully that can that can result in some greater space. And hopefully in two three years this is revisited, and uh, and we've got we've got a good plan going forward. So uh, you mentioned that there's going to be some kind of consultation between the community and BCLC uh, concerning its plans, etc. Give me any idea how, what kind of form that would take, what it will look like, or is that something that's got to be all hammered out yet? Well, I, it was it, it was uh, it was tasked to BCLC to set that up, and they enthusiastically took that on. So I, I think it, it's uh, it, what it will look like. I think really depends on on what what we can. What, what we can do but I think you know if there's if there's things that BCLC wants to uh, wants to get done and 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 is 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 moving ahead with it's important that that information gets out there uh, through through the proper channel so it can be clearly communicated and so I think at first and foremost that would be that would be part of it and then we'll see where it goes 
Is it is it important to have, I don't know, for example, like regular meetings between your group and BCLC? Like, how do you get the, I guess what I'm getting at is, how do you get the flow of communication between what they're doing and the quote-unquote community? Who among the community would get it and take part in it? Well, I'll be honest with you, Shane. There's a lot of new breweries that are opening up and some, some conversations around a pub crawl or, or just uh, maybe... <laughs> certainly did come up in the meeting <laughs> that would be your style all right joshua thanks for taking some time uh really appreciate an insight into that meeting yesterday and uh i understand you're down in vancouver so uh safe drive back home thanks very much there we go that's joshua knack who's the president of the chamber of commerce here in Kamloops, also with arpa investments talking about that meeting with attorney general david eby in vancouver yesterday about uh, bclc and trying to ensure that it uh, stays within this community despite uh the scrapping of the downtown headquarters replacement project we're going to take a quick break here on the woodford show on the other side we're going to talk about an anti-gang program rolling out in certain school districts across this province on the list Kamloops. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. We're all aware of the shooting deaths, police situations, and what seems to be some kind of a struggle within the street-level drug trade here in Kamloops. Well, those headlines have caught the attention of BC's education minister, who's rolled out a program to tackle gang violence through education within the school system. On the list of communities to get these anti-gang programs within schools is Kamloops. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program Education Minister Rob Fleming. Yeah, this is going to help. This funding will help uh, approximately 12 communities increase the kind of gang prevention programs that they already have or uh, need to have in place. Uh, This is going to help educate young people about uh, how and and why gangs uh, try and take hold and recruit young people out of schools, uh, where to go for help. It'll help uh, teachers in the school system. Uh, also uh, be able to address kids about these kinds of subject matters. It'll help districts like Kamloops um, hold uh, workshops and professional development uh, training, which uh, I understand they've already done last week, um, and have additional uh, training sessions for the student population, which they're uh, in the process of scheduling. Um, it'll also help schools where they have you know, gang-involved or formerly gang-involved young people uh, in their schools, uh, look at having uh, after-school programs. Uh, I know Kamloops is interested in a partnership with the Boys Club Network, which has been a very successful uh, program that has helped uh, uh, get uh, young men, uh, typically, uh, back with their families and away from the dangers and luring, uh, allure of uh, gang life. Uh, you you referenced some uh, sort of instructional stuff uh, here in Kamloops. Uh, tell me about sort of those sessions and what else uh, will this program sort of funnel to our community? Well, some of it is going to uh, be used to develop appropriate uh, teaching resources. So, you know, it's a, it's a very tough subject matter. It needs to have an appropriate level of uh, realism. Uh, and, uh, you know, it will involve the production of videos that can be used in classroom settings. In some cases, it's about community capacity building. Um, I was in Abbotsford yesterday, and I was very, very pleased to see that parents and neighborhood organizations, which hadn't talked about gangs a whole lot uh, over the last year, are now highly organized. Um, they've seen a reduction in shootings. They've had been able to coordinate with the school system and with the RCMP detachment. Uh, a lot of uh, 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 
community meetings that have uh, been able to spread information and it's, it's helped families deal with the reality that gangs in fact are part of uh, that community and other communities in bc so it's really about developing a strategy uh to cut um gang activity off at its source or at least keep it out of the school system and that's certainly my goal as a minister of education is to make sure that every uh, school is a safe and welcoming place uh, free of gang and gun violence and that all students uh, are highly engaged in school and those kids that uh, are at risk of getting involved in gangs are ones that are typically not very engaged in school so we need to have more effective uh, programs that are inclusive of students like that. My understanding is this funding is two-year funding and it'll sort of get reviewed uh, biannually. But to, from your perspective, uh, how important is it to formalize sort of a anti-gang, anti-crime stuff within the school curriculum as a whole over the long term in order to prevent problems rather than putting these things into place after the fact when you have a flare-up of gang activity? I think the prevention is critically important. And there are some communities that, you know, police experts have said, look, these are good areas to invest in preventative resources uh, who are saying, well, we don't have gangs here. And while that may be the case, wherever there is uh, uh, buying and drug and selling of drugs and, and other kinds of criminal activity, that's typically uh, what leads to, uh, you know, the threat of violence and uh, the presence of guns in a community. So you have to um, be very preventative before gang formations take hold. And uh, the reality is, is we're dealing with a, a gang situation in some communities in BC uh, that is a serious problem. And we have lots of programs through the Justice Ministry that deals with those who have, uh, you know, that are either offenders that have been arrested and charged and convicted, um, uh, or uh, older uh, kids who have become uh, adults um, in in the justice system. What we need is to to look way downstream and make sure that young people are finishing school, that they have hope and optimism in their lives, that they're, you know, connected um, to life beyond school, and that they uh, have, um, you know, the kinds of uh, experiences in school that, that, um, that are keeping their attention there. I know uh, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit and other police resources have been running the End Gang Life program uh, in, this, in the school systems uh, for a little while now. Uh, how closely do you guys work with the police to ensure that those resources are, are in and that the, the officers and some of the experiences that those sessions can bring are, are brought to classrooms throughout the province? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the initiatives of, uh, of the ERASE strategy as it relates to uh, gang and gun violence activity is to bring the policing community into even closer proximity with school districts. I mean, it's, it's a lot different today than it was a few years ago. Um, and uh, with this program, which will be administered by the BC School Superintendents Association, uh, every step of the way, uh, the uh, policing community is critically important. In fact, looking, the police will... Uh, We'll look in a community like Kamloops for signs on social media that there's gang activity or threats of gun violence and alert uh, school district officials to make sure that that can be disrupted. Um, so they're critically important. Uh, Safer Schools Together is also a key partner in terms of developing the new provincial learning resources that'll help uh, BC education professionals um, really deliver a powerful uh, message in the classroom on gang prevention. 
Uh, some other matters to throw at you, Rob. As, uh, as you know, uh, this district uh, grappling with sort of an overcrowding problem um, ahead of whatever you might announce on the Valley View side. Uh, they've reopened uh, Westside Elementary. I assume that will lead to other discussions about reopening other schools in the near future. Uh, so Westside Elementary will reopen in September, hopefully alleviating some of that burden. Just a quick thought about um, that decision here in Kamloops. Well, I, I certainly respect the um, the role of trustees in making a local decision about reopening a school, and I think that uh, in Kamloops that was a discussion that had been underway for uh, longer than a single school year, and uh, and so looking ahead to September 2019, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that the board, in consultation with the community, has decided that Westside. Uh, will add uh, to the educational landscape in Kamloops and be a good feature and help them deal with uh, some of the overcrowding issues that, that they're now confronting. All right. Um, and on that note, uh, with the overcrowding issues here in Kamloops, would you advocate them to continue down that road of, of looking at other closed schools and saying, okay, uh, until we get some capital investment flowing into the district, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to look at this building, we need to look at that building? Well, each district is different, but I can tell you that Kamloops is not the only school district that is looking at reopening schools. We have a number of them around BC, and and you know, look, but it's not just related to demographics, although that is a factor. It's it's related to the previous government's 12-year fight with the teachers being overturned by the Supreme Court, uh, reducing class sizes. Uh, making classroom uh, workloads for teachers uh, better. Uh, it's also been helped by uh, our government uh, investing record amounts of, of funding into the school system. You know, the previous government not only uh, demanded that school district close schools, they forced them into very difficult financial positions where they literally said, look, to, to address operating deficits, you should shut a school down to save on the, the heat and light. And uh, we do not have uh, budgets that are lean like that now. We have uh, added a billion dollars in just 18 months uh, as a new government uh, to the operating budgets of the school system, and uh, and it's a sea change from where we were just a few years ago under the BC Liberals. That was Education Minister Rob Fleming talking about anti-gang programs rolled out in a number of school districts, including our own here in Kamloops. Take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll have a discussion with BC Transit as they move to a tap card system. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Well, welcome back to the Woodford Show. Talking transit now. In most major metropolitan areas, the transit system operates on a tap card. In Seattle, it's called the Orca card. In London and the United Kingdom, it's the Oyster card. And in Metro Vancouver, of course, it's the Compass card. Well, now, BC Transit, which runs all transit systems, including here in Kamloops and every other community outside of Metro Vancouver, is also moving to a tap technology for its buses. But they're doing it in a little bit of a different way than they did with TransLink. Pleasure to have BC Transit's Vice President of Business Development, Christy Riddout, on with us this morning. Christy, uh, as I'm sure you're aware and everybody else is, uh, down in Lower Mainland in TransLink, they moved to a compass card system a few years back. The the TAP system is, is used, I guess, in most metropolitan areas in North America these days. Uh, BC Transit is moving in that direction, uh, moving to a TAP card system. Uh, as we make our way there, um, give me an idea of where we're at right now as far as on the timeline between the system we currently have and moving to a TAP card system. What's going on out there? So, uh, 
this is a multi-year project. Uh, we're doing this not just in Kamloops, but we're doing it in all of our systems across the province. And it's going to be a little different than what you would see down uh, in TransLink. We aren't actually going to be using a smart card the way that TransLink does. We're going to be trying to leverage uh, smartphones. And so this is more of a bring-your-own ticket type platform where our vision is to enable people to purchase their uh, fare products right online and then bring them with them to the bus uh, using their phone and they'll potentially be able to either scan a barcode on their phone or tap it um, and uh, right on the bus. Now, that's what we see as being the first phase and then eventually uh, we want to position ourselves so that we do get to that point like they've uh, introduced in, in uh, the Lower Mainland recently where you can just tap your credit card or debit card. Okay, perfect. Uh, where are we in the process of sort of seeing the first phase become reality? Is there, are we sort of uh, well back? I mean, I don't know what sort of what's going on right now. I understand you may have a request out there uh, for a vendor or give me an update of the lay of the land as we speak today. Yeah, we sure do. So right now we are in the RFP process, so we're waiting to find out what the marketplace can offer to respond to our needs, and we expect that we should be able to enter into a partnership sometime by the end of summer, and then we'll be in the planning phase. And our hope is that we'll start implementing in our first system uh, in early 2020, and then it's going to be uh, very rapidly paced thereafter. Uh, we hope to have all of our systems complete by 2022. So exactly where Kamloops uh, lands in that implementation is still up for debate. That's something that we will be negotiating with the vendor that we partner with on the project. Perfect. Um, I know from sort of covering what TransLink did and, and their switch over from the, the paper card, uh, paper ticket to, to the current Compass card, that there was a lot of hurdles there, especially on the technology side of uh, getting these sort of uh, things and you need the tap system, the actual hard bases and stuff into buses and then getting the whole system to work and marry with each other. Uh, are you anticipating, I know that you're doing something sort of slightly different, are you anticipating any technological hurdles that could throw a wrinkle into this or no? Technology projects are always a challenge. Um, I, 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 we will be prepared for any of those challenges that, that come to fruition, but it is uh, largely an exercise in change management. Uh, we are going to be slightly better positioned in the sense that we won't be needing people to physically go in and, and get a card for them to use the system. Cash will still be accepted on our buses, uh, and there will still be a certain number of paper products that will be available through um, uh, our vendor network. So it, it will be a bit of a trans transition. We'll make sure that our customers are really well prepared in advance of the system hitting Kamloops. Um, and, you know, we've had uh, the benefit of a lot of, of technological learning through um, the NextRide technology that we put on the fleet uh, just last year. And, you know, a lot of the base infrastructure will actually be able to leverage uh, as part of this next um, technology project for the fare collection. You, you may have just answered my next question in your in your previous answer, but I was going to ask you, like, with if you're going to rely on phase one and people using basically their smartphones, uh, how would people, you know, seniors and others who may not be so smartphone capable, how would they sort of interact with the system? But I assume that that would mean the cash and the paper card system that's still sort of left yeah, there. Yeah, we, we know that there's always going to be a demand for that. We don't want to create barriers to using the system. If anything, this is just an opportunity for us to create more options, uh, really improve the customer experience 
experience, um, make it more convenient for those people who feel comfortable paying uh, online and using their smartphones, but we're not going to create um, any difficulties for people who want to continue using cash. We know that that's important and, and we'll, we'll make that available to them. All right. Next obvious question is, is you move to the system, will there be any changes to the pricing structure? I know in in TransLink's case, and again, I know it's a different sort of uh, experience down there, but uh, they did alter their sort of fee structure. How's, how's BC Transit tackling it? So the way that BC uh, Transit is structured is that um, fair decisions are actually made by the local government. So the city of Kamloops would make any decisions with regards to um, fair structure, and that is not linked to this technology. So the technology is an enabler, and it will be flexible so that it can allow for potential future changes to fair structure that that need to be made um, throughout time. But it's um, it's not that the two will be linked uh, together as, as happening at the same time. All right. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about phase two. I know phase one, we're going to try and harness the smartphones. Uh, and then down the road, you want to move to sort of a card system. You mentioned that you wanted people to tap a credit or a debit card. The way I've seen it in other uh, metropolitan areas, including Vancouver, and, and we raised the compass card, it's just a physical separate card that people put money on. Uh, in other jurisdictions, it's called different things. But are you actually going to use just the, the credit and debit card that people have in their pocket? Or will there be a separate card uh, that's unique to BC Transit? There will not be a separate card unique to BC Transit. Our hope is that we can go straight from uh, from a smartphone or using Apple Pay or that type of thing from your phone to eventually just being able to actually tap your credit card or your debit. Now, again, it's our vision, and we have to wait to find out what the market can offer us and 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 what that phased approach looks like. But but yeah, we're we're trying to cut out that middle section which requires the physical card owned by the transit company. Interesting. That's an interesting way to do it. I'll be interested to see how it all works out. Uh, Just out of curiosity, phase two, any idea when uh, you'd like to see that come to fruition? We're looking at 2020 for the first phase. Any idea on phase two? I can't answer that entirely until we know what it is that the market can offer. But if we can move there faster um, rather than, you know, later, then we're certainly going to do that. Uh, the, most, the, the most important thing to us is that we do this technology um, project right and that it isn't, um, you know, that we don't run into any challenges. So we're not going to bite off more than we can chew. Um, we're going to get that smartphone uh, technology up and working and get, and then we'll assess how quickly we can move to the next phase. Interesting. Uh, any idea or any uh, sort of sense whether this would address some of the uh, fare evasion that, that sometimes plagues transit systems? I know trans, in TransLink's case, I hate to keep bringing those guys up, but they're the closest thing to the system that we're, we're looking at going with BC Transit. Um, any idea whether this could, you know, help out in the fare evasion front or no? certainly could. It certainly is intended to cut down on any sort of um, conflict um, because anytime you have to do visual validation or the operator, the driver has to do visual uh, validation of a, of a fare, it can create some challenges. Um, I think that, you know, there is always going to be a certain amount of fraud, but um, if we are able and and able to create uh, as many options as possible for people so that they don't have those barriers to getting on our buses. I think it'll create a, a more seamless uh, a process for people. Back to phase one with the RPO there. You guys are looking for a vendor. Uh, give me a sense of the timeline there. When is that closing and when do you hope to make a decision on, on a final provider there? 
so I believe that we have uh, an, about another four weeks that uh, that people will be able to respond for, and then there will be an evaluation process uh, internally, and then uh, we'll probably enter into some discussions with vendors uh, middle of the summer. So our hope is that we have a leading proponent that we go into contract discussions with towards the end of summer. Interesting. Uh, and, of course, you mentioned uh, on the technology side, next ride, uh, before we before we say goodbye here, um, mm. how's the next ride thing working out? I would assume that it's working out quite well. It seems to be a very interesting piece of technology that transit users can use, but are they using it? Do you have a sense whether it's going well or no? They are. In fact, Kamloops has been an incredible adopter, um, and we can actually see um, the in- increase in use of people uh, tapping into the system itself uh, has skyrocketed rocketed in Kamloops. Um, you're leading the way. So it's fantastic. I, I get the impression that people are really pleased with it, and that obviously makes us very, very happy. That's interesting. Is it having an effect on drivers? Do they feel the need to get to that stop in a more timely fashion or no? I, I think it takes some of the pressure off because people are less inclined to get anxious or irritated when things aren't perfectly on schedule, when they know where the bus is and when they can expect it. If that guesswork is taken out of things, then it just it it creates a sense of comfort. So, uh, you know, there's there's always a bit of change management with regards to operators getting used to the new technology and working out any of the kinks, but so far we've gotten really good feedback. So, And we're very appreciative that they've been so willing to work um, uh, work with us to learn the new system. Awesome. Technology is a wonderful thing, and it's amazing what we're doing with it each and every day. It's true. <laughs> Christy, thanks for taking some time to talk uh, today. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks so much. That was Christy Ridout, who's the Vice President of Business Development with BC Transit, talking about uh, the transit utility moving to a tap card system in two phases, phase one arriving next year. We'll take a quick break. A lot more on the Woodford Show next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Welcome back. We're all aware of the uh, situation plaguing ICBC right now uh, with its uh, dumpster fires, our Attorney General put it, fiscal situation. A big factor in that is the number of crashes and claims that go along with it, not to mention uh, the toll physically and uh, and the number of lives lost due to crashes around this province in all sorts of situations and places. Uh, moving to Manitoba, a group called Microtraffic has been launched to uh, ostensibly find a proactive way to tackle traffic safety as opposed to a reactive way. Real pleasure to be joined this morning by UBC civil engineering professor, Dr. Tariq Saeed uh, on the phone line now. Good morning, doctor. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing? I am well. Uh, so give me an idea of what uh, microtraffic is doing. I understand you're working with them. Uh, my understanding is they're, they're using artificial intelligence and video uh, to sort of uh, look at close calls. How does that work? How, what, how do you do that and what do you glean from it? Okay, I'm not working with them. There are several companies that um, started uh, based on work we uh, started at UBC, University of British Columbia, in 2006 mm. uh, to model near misses. Traditional road safety analysis has relied on collisions. Um, so we analyze collision data, and collisions are um, rare events. So we have to wait for a long time to observe adequate number of collisions before we can intervene and find what's wrong. Uh, while we are waiting, people continue to die and may be injured. Um, so we came up with this idea at UBC where we can 
uh, analyze near misses or what we call traffic conflicts instead of analyzing collisions. And this is a, a proactive approach. We don't have to wait for collisions to happen. And not only that, it will give us much better understanding of the safety problem and will allow us to come up with much better countermeasures. And it is done in an automated way using computer vision and uh, artificial intelligence techniques. From any video, we can track any object that moves and we get the, uh, their trajectories, like their location in time and space. And we can see when they approach each other uh, in a dangerous situation, these can be identified automatically. And we can have much better understanding of the safety problem and how uh, we can remedy the safety problem in a proactive way. So when you're looking at, uh, I don't know if it's an intersection or wherever, when you look at that data, what do you glean from it in order to say, okay, this is wrong or, or that is wrong? I mean, you must physically go in and say, okay, something here is causing a problem uh, and then determine what that something is. Walk me through that process. So give me an example of, of something that, that uh, like an analysis of, of how you would arrive at how to make a change. A very good example, I don't know if you are familiar with Vancouver Burrard Bridge. Um, so Burrard and Pacific, uh, we ha in Vancouver, we had uh, a high number of traffic conflicts identified by our technique between cyclists heading south and right-turning vehicles um, heading south as well. And what we decided to do is to close this right-turn ramp and bring all the vehicles to a signalized intersection approach with no right-turn or at. And by doing so, um, we eliminated all of these um, cyclist vehicle conflicts. And we can see significant safety benefits as a result of this. So we can identify different types of conflicts, rear-end conflicts, right-angle conflicts. And each type of conflict will have engineering changes that can be made to reduce or eliminate them. Any idea now, I mean, it's an interesting piece of work, but uh, where it'll really make changes is actual physical changes in the areas of concern that, uh, that you guys may have found. Uh, are you working with municipalities? Are you working with ICBC? Are you working with the province here in British Columbia on any specific areas currently or no? Uh, yes, we are doing work currently in 12 different countries. Uh, for um, NBC um, in Vancouver, we are um, uh, changing um, signal timing at two downtown intersections uh, to introduce what we call uh, lead pedestrian interval to allow pedestrians to start crossing before left-turn vehicles to eliminate uh, left-turn pedestrian conflicts. Um, we make many changes. We um, close some ramps. We identify, we um, uh, add islands um, for cyclists and pedestrians. So there are many changes that can be made from an engineering point of view to make roads safer. Do you see that this particular sort of strategy uh, growing and being sort of uh, one day becoming sort of the everyday way of doing things and determining if whether an intersection or a stretch road is, is safe or not? It seems relatively new. Will we see more of a broader use of it in the future? Uh, significantly, as I said, we are doing work in 12 different countries, and we have shown very strong, um, very strong relationship between these near misses and collisions. So if we can reduce near misses, we will be reducing collisions. And it is very cheap. Uh, all it takes is a video, and most of the intersections have cameras, and the analysis can be done very quick, and countermeasures can be developed and applied very quickly. Um, do you actually look at crash data at all, or is it just near misses? And if you're not looking at crash data, why not? Uh, we can, but the problem with crash data, as I said, it takes long time to accumulate adequate number of crashes for analysis. It can take three, four years to have 50, 60 collisions. 
so we can do proper statistical analysis. We cannot wait. Uh, this is, will be a reactive approach. So going proactive with, with uh, the near-miss approach is much more efficient. Is, is there any way of sort of determining what a, a cost savings or a, a saving the number of lives when you make these changes? Any way to kind of quantify that in any particular situation or no? Yeah, significant. Um, and again, um, uh, safety-based design of roads is becoming the norm now. And a very good example is the sea to sky. Um, if you compare um, the number of fatalities on the sea to sky before the improvement that took place uh, for the Olympics, and now we have about 50% reduction in fatalities. So these interventions can lead to significant reduction in injuries and fatalities. Have you found a commonality among some of the some of the situations you've looked at, or is it a is it a variety of different things that, that have been tweaked in order to improve road safety, or has there been uh, sort of one overriding thing that, that people are doing wrong out there when they design an intersection or a road that you guys are catching? Uh, no, there are a variety of things, and each location will have different contributing factors. But one common factor is usually the left turn treatment, uh, especially when you have what we call permissive left turns, when you have vehicles making a left turn in, a, uh, in the opposing traffic, in a gap. In this case, we need to protect uh, cyclists and pedestrians crossing the, the road at the same time. Uh, you've mentioned work uh, along the Sea of Sky Highway in, in, in Metro Vancouver. Uh, anything in the interior or on the Coquihalla here in, in uh, Kamloops area or no? Not at this time, no. But we've done some other work in Kamloops. Okay, interesting. Uh, Coquihalla is a pretty major artery here, and there's been a fair number of crashes. I'd be curious to know what that technology, if applied, what it would find. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, another thing that we've done, we evaluated the impact of the increased speed limit, and we showed that the increased speed limit led to 11% increase in injuries and fatalities, and I think the government was wise to um, roll back the speed limit increase, and that's all based on the work that we've done here at UBC. Interesting. Uh, before I let you go, uh, just uh, are you any idea how you're going to expand here in, in BC over the next uh, little while? Yeah, as I said, we provide this technology to different companies. Like you mentioned, the company in Winnipeg, there is a company in uh, Montreal, and there are several companies worldwide also that are making use of our technology for road safety analysis. Interesting stuff. Doctor, that, uh, that's a pretty fascinating thing. And, uh, man, if you can save some lives, not to mention the cost, uh, what a thing that would be. Thanks for taking some time this morning to shed some light. Oh, thank you. That's Dr. Uh, Tariq Saeed. He, was the, uh, he works with UBC, a civil engineering professor there, talking about using artificial intelligence uh, and video camera footage in intersections and other places to determine uh, proactively what's wrong there, what is making things unsafe, and then making tweets to increase the safety uh, and preventing crashes and saving lives. Amazing stuff. Uh, that is it for today's edition of The Woodford Show. Uh, the show will be on again tomorrow, although, again, it's going to be a, a little bit of a name change inside politics. Is coming your way Friday morning on Radio NL. The Woodford Show will be back on Monday morning. Thank you for listening. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station, this is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.